Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's one security, it's one number, the 10-year Treasury and 3%. Just what is so important, if there's anything important at all, about a psychological line in the sand that hasn't been crossed in more than four years? We can bring in now Carl Weinberg, high-frequency economics founder, who joins us in New York. Carl, important or not important at all? Oh, it's, it's psychologically important, I think, but I'm hard-pressed to argue that uh, the, the gentle rise we're seeing in the bond yields over time is really making a breaking force on the economy. With inflation sizing up to be around, uh, I don't know, 2.5% or thereabouts, you're looking at half a percent real rate of interest on 10-year bonds. That's not going to do the job that the Fed has to do of slowing the rate of growth of jobs in the economy. Carl, would you describe this as gradual, though we were close to 2% just back in September, the two-year number? that yields doubled in in less than a year we've had a real real reprice across the curve over the last six to nine months yeah i see i see what you're saying and for markets there's a good bit of volatility in in there that we haven't seen in a long time and that's certainly an issue uh, for the markets but speaking as an economist which unfortunately is the limit of my abilities uh, we're looking at uh, really a, a long-term yields that still have to go higher in order to break the economy. What's more important at the moment, Carl, as far as you're concerned, in, in terms of what's happening with the debt market? Is it the supply, the amount of debt issuance we get even more through this week as well? Is it the prospect of inflation starting to bubble away, the price pressure finally starting to come through? Is it something else? What is it? Uh, well, it's yes and yes to both of those questions. I mean, the market should be thinking about inflation risks. It's, it's not here now, but the, the laws of supply and demand haven't been repealed. The labor market uh, keeps on getting tighter. And as my colleague Jim O'Sullivan suggests, unless the labor market stops getting tighter, it's going to reach a point where uh, it is going to uh, trigger some uh, wage pressure. Well, and as far as supply is concerned, well, we've all been reading about the, the U.S. deficit and the impact of yeah. the tax cuts on it. That's got to be weighing very heavily on the market, especially at an auction time like this. Well, much of that issuance has come at the front end so far, Carl. And I guess my question to you is, at what point do you start to consider these yields as sort of a restriction against the general economy? You say not now, but looking at where short-term interest rates are, that's got to take a bite at some point. Yes, at some point uh, it does. Uh, right now, though, the indications that uh, that, w that we're looking at and that the Fed are looking at suggest that it's not biting very much. We're seeing the sentiment indices uh, looking uh, quite positive. We're seeing the Fed uh, remarking that financial conditions are still quite easy with the stock market being so strong, so uh, profits being good. So uh, overall, it doesn't seem to be biting just yet. How do guys like you draw fiscal debt and deficit economics into all your monetary and international swirl. Where does it fit in algebraically? Where does it fit in geometrically? Or just simply, where does it fit in in reality? Well, I think reality is the easiest place uh, to put it because as economists, you have to have a free-floating anxiety about this business of running up the fiscal deficit at a time when the economy is so tight, stimulating the economy when labor is already in scarce uh, supply relative uh, to demand. 
of uh, pushing an economy that's arguably at the peak of its business cycle. That's what the IMF told us this weekend. That's what Jim O'Sullivan is telling us in his high-frequency economics notes. Um, so the, overall, the question is not so much what happens right now, but what's going to happen when the cycle turns, and that's but inevitable. You nailed it. The, the thing here, Carl, is we take the net present value of what we think is going to happen to debt and deficit out there, and we pull it back to the present. Do the current chronic trillion-dollar deficits, plural, of the United States of America create a present moment of angst or not? I think at this point they create concern about angst rather than angst itself. Okay. But you know what they say. You know, fear, fear of dying is worse Jen, than death itself. You know, that's Nietzsche's. That was way there. too existential for him. <laughs> <laughs> help me here, Jim. Please. There was a fantastic IMF report, and I'm sure you guys discussed it when I was away from the studio last week, Tom. And within this report... Oh, you weren't here? I, I wasn't here. Did you miss me? I Clearly know not. That. <laughs> Neither one of you were here. Were you interviewing you with record. Arsenal? I, I was interviewing with Arsenal for for Wenger's job. I was in North London. For, I thought it was Wenger. I got in trouble. Did you get in trouble? I, in trouble. I imagine you got in trouble for saying that and, and a few other things as well. Um, Carl Weinberg, within this IMF report, just showed where debt-to-GDP ratios are going to be over the next five years for the world's developed economies. And, and standing alone was the United States. It was the only debt-to-GDP ratio that the IMF forecasts to increase over the next five years. How significant is that, Carl? I share the IMF's concern that uh, U.S. debt to GDP is going uh, to rise. It seems to be affordable right now in good times. There's lots of savings out there, but if the business cycle turns sour, it's going to become more difficult to finance. So uh, I think the risks are clear and the IMF has done a good job of stating them. Just looking at some of the risks now, though, and as far as the next downturn is potentially concerned, Carl, I, I see the United States and its fiscal position increasingly exhausted before the next downturn. And I see the Europeans, the Eurozone and the European Central Bank increasingly exhausting their monetary policy options before we reach the next downturn as well. Out of those two situations, an exhausted fiscal position in the United States, an exhausted monetary policy position in Europe, going into the latter years of this cycle, what are you more concerned about, Europe or the United States? Well, I think that in Europe, sluggish economic growth and subpar economic growth isn't news, all right? It's, uh, Europe's become accustomed to uh, underperforming uh, in terms of historical standards. Uh, we've had a little bit of a blip in the last few quarters, but net-net uh, uh, GDP growth has been rather slow. I think a slowdown in the United States from the point where we are right now, from this overheated condition that we're moving into after this uh, fiscal stimulus. Are you and Jim O'Sullivan assuming that? We're, we're assuming in Jim's forecast that the U.S. economy is going to get a blip from the tax cuts yeah. that we've seen and from this deregulation, but that, that that expires in the new year. You see, the thing about fiscal policy is you have to keep on increasing it just to keep it steady. You have to spend more and more each year in order to keep the same impact on yeah. growth. And once this blip goes through, then growth is going to go back down. Ten-year yield, 3%. Just in your head, Carl, with your decades of experience, at what 10-year yield do we go, oh, there's just a cycle, there's that glimmer, that shift. Are we close to that or is it distant, like 4 or 5% from another time and place? Yeah, well, I think Jim and I uh, have uh, maybe slightly different views on all of this, but speaking for myself, I look at about 100 points above inflation as being a level that is a breaking level uh, okay. for long-term yield. So if inflation is going to run at 2 to 3%, then we could see long-term yields in the 3 to 4% range okay. as being still neutral. 
Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. High frequency economics, just really good to get great perspective. John, it was great to have uh, Dr. Weinberg on the set with David Pearl of Epic Investments, like two different worlds, yeah. just this world-class uh, character. right now for those of you on global wall street for those of you grinding away for the cfa exam usually june 1st ish and this year later this is a clinic of the morning david pearl at epic investments where they manage money he and bill priest um are basically iconic on the study of free cash flow david pearl what do we get most wrong about free cash flow when you see cfas or mbas blather on about it what do they most get wrong well, first, the concept of free cash flow is, you know, everyone is used to this idea of earnings, but earnings are an accounting measure. It's not like a law of physics. It's not immutable. It's a game like baseball. If everyone plays by the rules, you can compare company A to company B. No one plays by the rules anymore. <clears throat> Companies yeah. use pro forma earnings, estimated earnings. We call it earnings before expenses. They do whatever they want. You can't even compare this year to last year in most companies. Whereas cash is real. That's yeah. how you run a business. And generating cash is how you grow a business. That's how you pay for new people, then, build a factory. Then what do you see among the technology people when you hear people say, oh, the social media guys, the technology guys, they think they play by a different playbook. But does Amazon, as one example, generate a lot of free cash flow? Yeah, so Amazon only generates cash in two areas that we can really see, which is the cloud, and uh, you know that's under intense competition, but a great business, and third-party fulfillment, where they don't own any of the inventory, they just mail it to you. So otherwise, their free cash flow is pretty negative. Their profit margins are actually lower than Whole Foods, which was a you know, not successful food retailer. So the answer is no, and the point about um, Wall Street is some companies just get rewarded for growth and Amazon's one of those. And as long as they can grow faster than expectation, it goes up and no one seems to care about profits. You know, Netflix is the other major fang company yeah. where growth is very, very high. And frankly, they're losing about $3 billion on, let's say, $16 billion of sales. That's just not good. And it doesn't look like that's going to change. It's actually going to accelerate that loss. So Netflix, a company with high cash burn, right. Tesla and another big company we all know of with high cash burn. What's the catalyst for change and a change in the way investors perceive these companies as to what is successful and what isn't? Is it high rates? Um, at some point for Netflix and Tesla, it will be because they are running out of money. I mean, Netflix will have to raise money in six months to nine months at the rate of cash burn. And Tesla has the same issue where now, you know, their debt is trading at 85 to 90 cents on the dollar and they're paying 5% and as rates go up, this becomes a onerous uh, task to keep financing a company that's gonna continue to lose money. Amazon is sort of self-funding, God bless them. They also have something that's unusual in accounting, it's negative working capital, because we all pay them upfront when we buy something and they pay their vendors whenever they feel like it. So they get an instant loan. So anyway, uh, for a lot of these companies, there is a huge difference between earnings and free cash flow. Netflix earned 64 cents this quarter and lost $300 million. Is, is your research or are the opportunities rather, I should say, in mid cap and small cap or, or is the free cash flow arbitrage, if you will, in the bigger companies? 
it, it is actually both. It depends on your point in your uh, your capital expense cycle. So for industrials like Boeing or even smaller companies or cable companies, if you spent 10 years digging holes in the ground, if you're a cable company or Boeing developing the 787, you are at the point right now where you're starting to make money like crazy. So Boeing's now selling an airplane at, you know, three, four hundred million dollars, they are getting cash. But they have all this non-cash amortization and depreciation built in. So their free cash flow per share is higher than their earnings per share. And it's going to be accelerating that gap. So Boeing looks yeah. a lot cheaper on free cash flow than it does on earnings now. What's your enthusiasm? Just one final question. What's your enthusiasm on the market? I mean, you're walking in yeah. to the acclaimed Epic Investments <laughs> and saying, let's put it to work. Let's go, go, go. So if you are if you really are an analyst, a bottom-up stock picker, you're feeling good because most companies are having a great year. And it's probably going to continue because of tax reform with lower tax rates, repatriation of cash if you're Microsoft mm -hmm. or Google. Uh, but the macro is the scary part. The big one on the horizon is trade, which has been talked about every day and today You know, a little more favorably. Yeah. Trade could derail it all. So with that proviso, right. we're bullish. David Pearl, thank you so much with Epic Investments uh, this morning. Tom Purcelli with us. With RBC Capital Markets, we've been talking wage dynamics, of which he is especially good. Tom, I want to really focus here on investment by corporations. We've got yeah. a tax cut. We've got this, that. We just hit on David Pearl with Epic Investments, their legendary and free cash flow analysis. Are they putting any of that money to work, actually like investing in American hardware? You know, so it, I, I love this question. Um, I would tell you that I think the pieces are, are in place for that to happen. Um, whether it actually happens is, is a slightly different story. But but let me let, let me let me give you something to think about. Um, so for starters, if you look at uh, lending standards uh, for commercial and industrial loans, um, they have eased, uh, and and that has been true now for a number of quarters, uh, and that tends to lead actual lending. Um, so I would tell you that's that's sort of piece one. Here, here here's the other thing to think about. I I'm not a um, you know, people love to talk about this idea of animal spirits, right? I mean, Tom, you, 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 you've obviously talked about this countless times. I have a hard time really sort of embracing the notion of animal spirits because I can't, I can't touch it. Um, and it, because I can't touch it, it's hard for me to sort of model that. Um, but I've, I've sort of come to religion on this idea a, a little bit, at least a little bit recently. I've, I've done um, a bunch of uh, corporate board meetings, um, uh, you know, just to sort of give them my view on what's happening from an economic perspective. Um, and when I go in, I've I've been struck by um, how uh, you know elated is maybe too strong of a word, but um, there's a, genu a genuine sense of um, positive vibe coming from the idea that we now have lower, lower corporate taxes, yeah. um, regulation might be scaled back, and what's interesting is I don't know how to model it. But I know what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing this sort of generally better yeah. attitude toward the backdrop. And I get it. You know, when we talk about repatriation, we all talk about it in terms of, you know, companies are going to use it for buybacks and right. dividends. Um, I, I just think, given okay. what I've been seeing recently, I, I would tell you, and given the fact that fundamentally you've had this improvement in lending standards, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if some of that gets siphoned off uh, and used for CapEx. Okay, I, I agree with all that, but I still don't understand how a corporate officer or a CEO 
CFO does a net present value analysis with yep. real rates, the fiction that they are. Do you are we anywhere near where a responsible financial executive can actually do the math that they learned in school? Yeah, well, here's the thing, and here's part of the here's part of that math equation. That I think people forget what are cash flows doing. Right, because it's true that if, if you know, the net present value of, of, of anything is going to deteriorate if rates simply rise. That's true. That's always true. But what if cash flows increase? Yeah. Then if your rate rises, then you're left with the same net present value. I mean, I think, I think none of this stuff exists in a vacuum, and everyone wants it to, but that is simply not the way that the math okay. works. Well, the, but the Fed, the Fed exists in a vacuum, which is by definition sure. they have to be reactive. Uh, yep. Given the data, Carney, Draghi, and the others clearly are waiting and waiting for inflation. We're yep. different, I'm told. We are going to see inflation. Our audience says they see it in Cleveland CPI and some of the more service sector laden indices. But is the inflation yep. there for Powell to act? It, 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 it's enough for them to act in the way that we expect them to, right? Which is to say, seven more hikes between now and the end of 19. Oh, Are they going to wow. get much more aggressive than that? Um, <clears throat> no, I, again, I, I think you know, we sort of were cut short a little bit earlier, um, and, and so I won't belabor that, that this point. Oh, no, read belabor. On a Monday, you can yeah. do that. <laughs> but I think that there is a really sound argument for not only our base case to come to fruition, but even a slightly more aggressive Fed than that. Um, if this idea that the consumer, and I'll just pick up on the thread that I left out there uh, in the first segment, if this idea that the consumer is now all of a sudden going to start to feel a little bit more emboldened to take on more credit, um, that's a, that's a, that, that's a, uh, a, that will goose up consumption. Um, and in that scenario, again, all in context of what we talked right. about even before that, this idea that wage pressures are building, um, yeah, I think that there's a real sound argument for the Fed to be a bit more aggressive. But again, that, that, that's not our base case. Our base case is that the Fed will go seven more times between now and 19, at the end of 19. Um, and and, and I, I don't know that you can expect uh, a <clears throat> materially more aggressive Fed than that. What GDP, not, not on our base case. What GDP is linked to your seven rate hikes in 18 3%. Three percent, roughly three percent. So it's issue, make America great again. The president has succeeded, without question. You can say the president has succeeded into the midterms and, frankly, into the beginning of the presidential twenty twenty to deliver three percent GDP. You know, I, again, I'll, I'll leave that to other people to sort of figure out whether he did his job or or, or not. But the reality is, we're going to get three percent growth, um, and uh, you know, I don't I don't think that's particularly heroic. I mean, going into yeah. this year, we had two and a half percent as our base case, uh, and then on the back of the tax cuts, um, we basically threw in an extra few tenths, three tenths to be exact, and then you get another tenth from from uh, okay. um, some capex bills. So we're officially we are two point nine percent. So in round numbers, three okay. percent. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, it, again low. Okay, very quickly, one other thought, Tom Purcelli, and that is with all the Tom Purcelli chat I'm hearing, it just assumes dollars stronger. Rates up, growth up, dollars stronger. It's not happening yet. Does it happen with a vengeance? So what I would say is this. I think when you think about the dollar, I think what you have to keep in mind is, you know, which cross are you comparing it to? So let's just pick on Europe. 
Um, and here's the reality behind Europe. Um, Europe uh, is, uh, has stabilized and relative, right, because this is the idea I think a lot of people forget, and relative to what we had been experiencing in Europe, which was, you know, sort of like people worrying about this worst-case scenario, that is a major win from a European perspective. So I, I never thought that the dollar would really be able to sort of advance in any material way on the back of the relative improvement in Europe. I think that's a really important idea. So, yeah, I think it's reasonable to expect some dollar strength, but I, 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 wouldn't, get, uh, I wouldn't take that idea too far. Tom Purcelli, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, this morning, RBC Capital Markets and really original wage growth work about 18 months, maybe two years ago uh, as well. Kitschuks of Societe Generale, we recalibrate before May 1st. Kit, when does the dollar go up? The big shock in your world over the last number of weeks has been dollar weakness. Is this lift that we've seen tangible? Do we finally see a reversal? Higher rates, better growth, stronger dollar. Is it for real? Uh, it's it's trying to be for real. We need to go a little bit further. And I, I think we need to get 10-year notes decisively to hold through 3% in a way that doesn't cause you know equity markets to go into retreat, the Fed to start getting worried. Um, I, th- I think it, you know if, if we're going to see the U.S. get interest rate support again, um, it's got to be you know a durable shift higher in expectations about where terminal Fed funds are. And, and right now, I think we're doing enough to give heart to some dollar bulls and, and to make some of the dollar bears and that's the majority of the market, but pretty anxious. Well, well um, kid, I mean, if it does reach, that. if it does reach over three percent for the tenure, should you buy it? Uh, treasuries, I, I would be quite tempted to buy some tens. If you know, once we we settle down there, I would get very tempted if we started seeing volatility pick up and, and equity markets start to sell off because I don't think there's much inflation out there, and I don't think the Fed's changing its long-term path. Remember, what matters is, is the Fed going to start moving its estimate of, of R-star, of neutral real rates? Are we going to change any of that? Or, or, or is this just um, just noise uh, as spring comes around after a, after a poor first quarter? Tell us about what's going on with energy markets and how that affects your outlook. Do you think that Good oil question. is overbought? Uh, I'm not, look, I'm not a big expert on, on oil. I think it's going up because it's being squeezed. It'll get overbought before it's done. But if, if we get some inflation just because we see you know, a spike up to a new range in oil and then oil prices find a level and go flat, I, I don't think that changes the longer-term inflationary story a jot. It doesn't feed through in a durable way. The question on inflation is about what happens to wage growth, um, not what happens to oil prices in a short period of time. And I don't think oil prices are going to run away. We, I think that's the, you know, the, the, the elastic. And, and, and supply globally is, is well, I think, well understood enough now, by now. So we may be moving to a sustainably higher range, but we're not going to 100 bucks. I, 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 okay, we're not going to go to 100 bucks. But within your reading, and as you say, you're you're away from oil and yet dollar denominated, etc. Are we at a point where the nuance of five dollars a barrel matters, or have we sort of had the jump, 50, 60, all of a sudden up to Brent, 73 dollars a barrel? Is the, is the effect or impact of the move in the past, or is it to come if we go $5 higher? I think it's in the past unless we start suddenly talking about breaking out. In other words, if we're going to settle at 70-something where we were 
sixty something for the last year, and then we've come from from the, these lower levels. Then you know, unless you unless you change that and talk, talk about you know a sustained move to something different, then I think this is this is just the back end of the move, which may include a little bit of an overshoot before we finally settle down. But the move itself is basically done. Kit, are you at all surprised by what gold hasn't done? Um, you know, I mean, no, I'm not. I mean, gold, you know, it, it tends to get somewhat more marginalized. But the, the big story that always supports gold is is going to be super low real yields and real returns on, on, on financial assets and, and concerns about inflation that come with that in a low inflationary world and slightly higher slightly higher yields on treasuries, then, you know, there, there are things to buy other than gold. So um, gold has remained, you know, reasonably well supported in the big scheme mm-hmm. of things. But uh, right. there's, no, there's no reason to me find a hole in the ground and put all my money in gold anymore. And now on Monday, we go technical with Kiss, Kit Jukes. We go into the granularity of the Swiss franc. Kit, we've had a move, weaker Swiss franc. Much of it is the nuance, the speculation, the speculation, the speculation that the Russian rich people are pulling their money out of Switzerland, whatever that may be. Is this a time where you get brave and go against the trend and go strong, Swiss franc? Um, I, I tell you, I think against the euro, the Swiss franc will strengthen if euro dollar breaks down through through 121 and a half, and I think we'll flush out. So the big mover in, in, in looking at the Swiss franc is what is happening against the Swiss franc, against the euro. We've taken that from... Uh, we've taken that from really from from 108 a year ago to 120 now. 120 is the level we broke down through in the big surprise when the peg broke. We've touched it and we're reversing. If the euro loses its mojo here, um, then I won't be short of the Swiss franc against anything. Kit, the stronger Swiss franc hasn't hurt the Swiss economy. No, the Swiss economy is not sensitive too much to, and, 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 you know, it hurts bits and it annoys people. But no, the, you know, the, the goods that Switzerland exports uh, are not price sensitive. Um, it causes some concern because it's given them falling prices, and sort of negative inflation that, that causes some concerns, and, and negative interest rates, which Swiss savers um, really don't like at all. Uh, you know, they're up in arms regularly against their central bank about that, that old folks who live in Switzerland aren't happy. But um, you know, we we don't we don't go. I don't know skiing in Switzerland or or, or buying Swiss pharmaceuticals or or, or uh, beauty products because um, because of the price. That's not what's driving that decision. Kitchus, th- thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with society, General. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.